In his book titled The God Delusion, prominent atheist Richard Dawkins systematically goes chapter by chapter and dissects everything about religion, everything about Christianity and a belief in any type of God and talks about why it's all false. Throughout the book, he continually criticizes Christians, calling us ignorant and brainwashed, even to the point of accusing us of being wicked and deceptive. He focuses in on many doctrines that Christians believe in and many Christian beliefs to back up his points and specifically dedicates a section in his book for prayer. He claims that because prayer is ineffective and the Bible claims that prayer works, that it is effective, therefore the Bible is untrue because it claims something that is false. To support this argument, Richard Dawkins cites a study called the prayer experiment. The prayer experiment is said to be one of the most scientifically rigorous investigations of prayer that has ever been done. In the investigation, approximately 1,800 different heart patients were divided up into three groups so they could study them. In the first group, the people, in the first group of people, they were receiving prayers, but they were unaware of it. In the second group of people, the control group, they were receiving no prayers and they were unaware of it. And in the third group of people, they received prayers, but they didn't know it. Or rather, they did know it. The results of the study of the experiment suggested that the prayers of, that were offered for groups one and three did not favorably affect the successful results of the su- surgery or recovery in any way at all. So in his book, The God Delusion, Richard Dawkins focuses in on these negative results of the experiment, insinuating that such an experiment proves that prayer is useless and the Bible's teaching on the topic is at odds with reality. But this prayer experiment is not the only thing that skeptics use to attack the Bible's position on prayer. Verses such as John 14, 14 are quoted often, which says, If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. John 15, verse 7, If you abide in me and my words in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Matthew chapter 21, verse 22, And in all things, whatever you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. After quoting these verses, skeptics then typically, typically will mention an instance where there's been Christian parents who are praying and asking God in the name of Jesus to save their children, to invoke an emotional response, but in spite of the prayer, the children may have died anyway. They'll argue that the children's death is proof, proof positive that Jesus was a liar and this his statements about prayer cannot be true. So how do we answer these allegations about prayer? How do we effectively defend the Bible's position on prayer? How can we wholeheartedly believe in the power of prayer and know without a shadow of a doubt that it works? Most of us understand the concept of attaching a qualifying statement to some of the things that we say. Take, for instance, if I were to make the statement, if John comes to my house and works for five hours, then I will give him $50. Well, say if John comes to my house and does no type of work at all and immediately demands the $50 payment, then John has misunderstood the qualifying statement that I made, which said if he works for five hours, then he will receive the payment. 
Without the first condition being met, the person making the statement is not responsible for fulfilling the second condition. That having been said, we read of several different qualifying statements in Scripture that can determine whether a prayer is found effective or not in the eyes of God. I think everyone in here understands that just because we slap amen at the end of a statement or request doesn't mean it's going to be effective in any way, doesn't mean it's going to make it past the ceiling. So right now, I would like to take a look at Scripture and figure out exactly what is the criteria, what are the qualifications that make up a biblical prayer. The first thing I would like to look at, a verse we just quoted a second ago, John 14, 14, Jesus tells his apostles, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. The first qualifying statement that we read about in scripture is that a prayer must be asked in the name of Jesus. Now, what does this mean? Does this mean that as long as a person adds the phrase in Jesus' name to the end of a prayer, that God is obligated to answer that prayer positively and exactly how the person prayed it wishes? Well, of course not. I think we all understand that. The phrase in Jesus' in Jesus's name in Scripture, and this is important, means that whatever is being said or done must be by the authority of Jesus. Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, a very familiar verse to all of us, makes this abundantly clear. It says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In this verse, is this verse saying that we should proclaim before every action or sentence that what is about to be said or done is in the name of Jesus? Well, of course not. It's saying that whatever actions are taken or words are spoken should be in accord with Jesus' teaching, should be under his authority. To illustrate this point, suppose a man bangs on your door and yells, open this door in the name of the law. Well, should you open the door for this man? Well, you see, that depends if the man is truly a police officer who has a warrant, who has been authorized by the government to enter your house, then yes, of course, by all means, you should open the door. But, however, if he is just a random civilian from off the street who has simply added the phrase in the name of the law to the end of his statement to make it sound more forceful, then by no means should you open the door for that man. The phrase in the name of the law only has force if the person saying it is actually authorized by the government to perform this action. In the same way, the phrase in Jesus' name or in the name of Jesus only has power and is only effective if what is being prayed is actually authorized by Jesus. If I prayed, Lord, please forgive me of my sins even though I don't forgive others of their sins, in Jesus' name, amen. Of course, Jesus is not going to comply with that request because he has explained that God will only forgive those who are willing to forgive others, and my request is not authorized and is not truly prayed in the name of of Jesus. The next qualifying statement that we read about in Scripture that is widely recognized for effective prayer in the eyes of God is that the person praying must honestly and wholeheartedly believe that God can and will grant that prayer if it is according to His will. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 22, 
says, In all things, whatever you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. In James chapter 1, we read a very interesting portion of Scripture and a pretty rare verse that we see if we pray for wisdom, that God will 100% give it to us freely and without reproach. There are very few instances in Scripture where a promise like this is given to us, but if we continue reading in James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, we see the qualifying statement of how we are to pray God and ask for wisdom. So if you would, James chapter 1, let's read verses 5 through 8 together. James chapter 1, starting in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. If you pray in the name of Jesus and according to the will of God, but in your heart you know that you are harboring these doubts, that you are not convinced of God's power and his promises in regard to prayer, then what does James say? He says that person, person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. He calls them a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Another qualification, the next thing I would like to look at that we read about in Scripture Suppose a person prays that God will grant him $10,000 every day for the rest of his life so that he can spend that money on himself to gratify his physical pleasures. Even if this person prays in the name of Jesus according to his will and honestly and wholeheartedly believes that God will answer this prayer, is God obligated to comply with such a request? One of the key concepts and qualifications regarding prayer and that we read about in scripture is the reason for which a person is making the request. If we are making a request that is driven solely by selfish or impure motivation, then by no means can we expect God to grant whatever we want that we're requesting. Going back to the book of James, he makes it abundantly clear in chapter 4 of James, James chapter 4 verses 2 and 3 James is talking about prayer. He says, You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. If our prayers have an underlying foundation of selfishness and are completely unmotivated by any type of spiritual concern, then we cannot expect our prayers to be effective in the sight of God. And lastly, the last qualification I'd like to look at about prayer is that a biblical prayer in the importance of persistence. In Luke chapter 18, we read about the parable about the persistent widow. And Jesus talks about this widow. She goes and makes a request to the unjust judge. And even though her request is a noble one, even though it's a righteous request, the judge doesn't feel obligated in any way to grant her request. But because she is persistent, because she of her continual coming to the judge, he finally gives in and grants her 
request. Jesus then goes on to say that if an unjust judge can be swayed by persistence of the widow, by her continuous request, how much more effective is the persistent prayer of a virtuous person when addressed the judge of all the earth? Jesus prefaces this parable in verse 1 of Luke chapter 18 by saying men always ought to pray and not lose heart. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, we all know it, it says, pray without ceasing. Making our requests known to God, but not only that, but following up on those requests, making a conscious decision to continually have a connection with our Savior. The skeptics, as we have mentioned, they love to cherry-pick situations where they claim that it appears that prayer hasn't worked or that God hasn't answered a prayer positively. And it is true that God does not always respond positively to every request that is made to him. But in all reality, it would be virtually impossible to document the millions of incidents where people's prayers have been answered positively. And I'm sure that everyone in here has an example of where they have seen God working through the power of prayer. And I've told you all these things to let you know that when a prayer appears to go unanswered or when someone claims that prayer doesn't work, that's simply untrue. It's not as simple as God just simply refusing to comply with a request, but the Bible tells us a set of criteria that allows a, pray, a prayer, a biblical prayer, if a request is not answered positively, then perhaps one of, at least one of the qualifications of a biblical prayer may have been missing. And these qualifications found in Scripture, they shouldn't be treated as a checklist of some sort, but rather these things should come naturally as we talk to God in prayer, if we are good stewards of the Scripture, if we are good students and we know what the Bible has to say about prayer. And it truly makes me worried as we talked about things like the prayer experiment, about how believers think about prayer, how they view prayer of how we can treat it as something like a science experiment. Have we sunken so low as a society, as a church, that our mindset towards prayer is nothing more than some sort of algorithm, than some sort of magic words that we can say and that we, we can use as a crutch to receive anything that we want without limit? Because that's not what biblical prayer is. Biblical prayer is a true, strong, personal connection with God our Father. And I don't think there is a more vivid depiction in all of Scripture of a true personal connection with the Father through prayer than Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17. Jesus has, in John chapter 17, Jesus has just finished telling his apostles that they are all going to leave him, that he will be all alone the whole betrayal and crucifixion process is about to begin. Jesus is about to enter the Garden of Gethsemane where everything is about to start happening at once. But here in John chapter 17, Jesus takes the time to talk with his father. This might be one of the most meaningful, one of the most powerful personal connections that Jesus has with his father while he's on this earth. You know, you know why I think this? I think this because Jesus is anticipating his betrayal, the suffering he's about to endure, 
because he is aware of the horrible things that are about to come, and that makes this prayer so much more meaningful to him. When I went whitewater rafting a couple years ago, and we entered the Olympic section, and the waves were just too much for our little raft, and we went, our raft completely flipped over, and I went flying and flailing in the river. As I was trying to make it to safety, as we finally got back to safety, and we entered our raft, and we were floating down the remainder of the river, I think that was some of the most sincere, some of the most meaningful prayers that I've ever prayed. Why? Because I was terrified about falling out of that raft again. I was terrified of the possibility of what might happen. When we are aware of some sort of impending physical suffering, or when we are absolutely desperate and in a time of need, our prayer life is majorly affected by this. And we pray some of the most fervent and some of the most meaningful prayers we've ever prayed. Jesus is anticipating horrible physical suffering. And in his desperate time of need, he lifts up his voice to the Father. His prayer right here in John chapter 17 is the last true lengthy interaction Jesus has with the Father before God turns away from him. Before God can no longer be in his presence because he is bearing the sins of the whole entire world while hanging up from that cross. Jesus prays a beautiful prayer in this chapter, and we don't have time to go verse by verse and dissect everything that he says, but this prayer is beautiful because it's one of the only true in-depth prayers that we have recorded from Jesus. We know that Jesus was constantly in prayer, especially by reading the Gospel of Luke, but we don't have many of his full-length prayers recorded in Scripture, that, so that makes this chapter so much more powerful. Because we get an insight on the personal connection that Jesus had with God. We get to see an insight on his thoughts and his character in this one last plea he has with the Father. The prayer is split up kind of in three different sections. The first part of the prayer in verses 1 through, one through 5, Jesus prays for himself. A phrase Jesus keeps repeating in these first five verses of John chapter 17 is glorify me, Father. Jesus is about to reach the culmination and the climax here on his, in his earthly ministry by dying on the cross. He has glorified God by being obedient to him. He has, become, he has glorified God by becoming a humble servant for him. In the next portion in the chapter, in verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays for his apostles. He prays for the people who he was closest to on this earth, who were with him throughout the course of his entire earthly ministry. Because Jesus' time has come, and now it is the apostles' job to continue the Lord's good work, to continue to further the kingdom on this earth. These are the men, the apostles, the men who Jesus is praying for right here. These are the men who will go on to write the entire New Testament who will go on to preach the first gospel sermon, who will go on to be responsible for the exponential growth of the church here, right here in the first century, and who will go on to die the most brutal, the most excruciating deaths for the cause of Christ. The majority of the apostles, of the apostles soon after Jesus prays this prayer, 
will turn their backs on him. Judas will betray Jesus. Peter will deny him. And the remaining ones are scattered and are not there for Jesus in his last hours in this desperate time of need. But nevertheless, Jesus chooses to pray for them in this time of need because he knows what they are capable of. He knows they will go on to do great things. And lastly, in the final portion of his prayer, what I'd like to close on in verses 20 through 26 is Jesus prays for us. If you would, let's read John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23 together. When Jesus prays for us, John chapter 17, starting in verse 20. I do not pray for these alone, but also those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be, per- may be just one just as we are one, I in them and you in me that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and you have loved them just as you have loved me. In the final portion of Jesus' prayer, in his final request to God the Father while on this earth, Jesus prays for you and me. He prays for the New Testament church. He prays for this congregation for us to be unified. For a plea for unity. The Mars Hill Chorus, we took a trip to New York this past spring break, and while we were up there, we went to a little congregation up there, and we did the services for this congregation, and while we were worshiping with them, we sang the same type of songs that we sang this morning, we read from the same Bible, we prayed the same type of prayers that we prayed this morning. On the youth group mission trip that we went on, Uh, this summer to New Orleans in the congregation that we were helping down there we fellowshiped just like we do here we preached the same type of sermons we prayed the same type of prayers we sang the same type of songs even though they may have sang them a little bit differently than us and churches across the world right now this morning they are fellowshipping together they are assembling together they're partaking of the Lord's Supper They are striving to be of one body. Why? Because we are striving for unity. Because we are striving to fulfill Jesus' final request for us in his prayer in John chapter 17 to be unified. I read a quote several years ago that has stuck with me ever since I first read it. It was in a book written by Thomas B. Warren, a famous, uh, he wrote a lot of biblical books, And he was talking about unity in the church. And in this quote, he said, In matters of obligation, there must be unity. In matters of option, there must be liberty. And in all things, there must be love. In matters of obligation, there must be unity. Well, what is a matter of obligation? Something that is essential, something that cannot be ignored, something that must be done. What is something that is essential? What is something that cannot be ignored? What is something that must be done? Matters of our salvation. Becoming a Christian, 
obeying the gospel, the good news, becoming a member of the church that Jesus bought with his own blood. In those matters, we have to, we are obligated to be unified. And if there is anyone here this morning who is walking in darkness, who has not given their life to Christ and obeyed the gospel, then we are not striving to fulfill Jesus' final request and we are not as unified as we should be. Jesus right here is expressing a plea for unity. And he died on that cross for us to be of one mind, for us to be of one body, for us to come to the unity of the faith. This morning, if you are walking in darkness, if you need the prayers and encouragement so that you can have a stronger prayer life, so you can have a stronger connection with the Father, or if you feel that you are not striving to be more unified, if you have not become a Christian, becoming a member of the church that Jesus bought with his own blood, being buried in the waters of baptism, becoming a new person in Christ, if we can assist you with any of these things at all, please come as we stand and as we sing.